The world is wrong. Hello, Drudgeheads, and welcome back to the Drudgecast. I hope you're having a really fantastic before Christmas times, because that's all it becomes, really, isn't it? And it's not even Christmas yet. And by this point, all the mince pies have been eaten, all the Christmas songs have been played, and everybody's sick of Christmas. I was back in October. So, this week on the Drudgecast, it's the letter G. And this week, G is for gender roles. What are the roles that gender has provided us with, limited us to, and where can we go from here? So, we'll cover gender roles in society, in the job market, whether they're historic, recent or current, look into how roles are being shaped for perhaps the first time, particularly in the non-binary world, and cover how roles can and might shape us. Come on, it'll be fun, I promise. I'll make it sexy and exciting, somehow. So, when thinking of gender roles in society and the job market, this is going to be an episode looking most specifically at the UK. Because I am from there, here. I have lived all but one years of my life in the UK, so it's the place I am best placed to talk about. And we're going to focus on four roles that have been traditionally gendered in some way. These are not ones I made up, though you know by this point that I love to make things up, even though everything is actually already made up, especially gender. But these are the four roles we'll be looking at. The breadwinner, the carer, the leader, and the entertainer. These roles, these pillars of society, these incredibly boring sounding wrestlers, will fight it out, well, not really amongst themselves, it'll be more of an internal fight, you know, a fight from within to determine whether they're really a man or a woman. I've been there. And their chosen weapons will be statistics, data, and culture. Sexy. So now I take you live to the gender arena where our commentators, Jessica Jabbit and Haria Hazaway, are observing the action. Over to you, ladies. Thank you, Ree, and my, what a sexy affair we've got for you tonight. Isn't that right, Haria? Yes, that's right, JJ. I've got the four names of the contenders to come out into the ring tonight, but the twist is that each contender is actually two separate contenders. One for the blokes and one for the birds. And they'll both be fighting it out for who will be the ultimate contenders in the gender game. You might want to check the copyright on that. Oh, look, and we've got our first two contestants coming out now. In the blue corner, we have the breadwinner. Oh, look at the buns on that. And in the pink corner, pink we... Pink corner? That's a bit sexist, don't you think? Hey, honey, I don't write the cards. I just show up and put my face against the microphone. In the pink corner, it's also... The breadwinner! Now, she's not been in the game as long as her opponent, but she sure has got a lot of spunk. Do you put spunk in your bread, Haria? What? Well, if you're doing the whole punning thing for this show, your puns need to make sense, dude. <laughs> Must have been a typo in the card. <sighs> I wish there'd been a typo in your contract. I could have had Anne Hathaway sat next to me. Anyway, the contestants are ready to fight it out. Tonight, our referee for the matches is Ree Baroche. Over to you, Ree, darling. Thank you, ladies. Now, to lay the ground rules for this fight, I need to refer to a study from 2013, the study of British social attitudes. According to this study, in the mid-1980s, close to half, 43% in 1984, and 48% in 1987, of people supported a gendered separation of roles with the man in the breadwinner role and the woman in the caring role. Clearly, at that time, there was a strong belief in the traditional gender divide. No shit. 
Wow, so almost 50% of people as recently as 1987, 35 years ago, believed in the man going out and earning the money and the woman staying home and looking after the children, essentially. This was the era of Thatcher, the UK's first female prime minister and one of the most successful and long-serving to date, though the terms of recent prime ministers is quickly changing what can be regarded as long-serving and successful. If you make it through the first month, you're doing pretty good. In this British social attitude study, and fast-forwarding from 1987 to 2012, it was found that in terms of views on a clear separation in roles between the genders, there has been a steady decline in the numbers holding this view. In 2012, only 13% of people, or one person in eight, thinks that this should be the case. That's a massive shift in the space of 20 years or so, from just under 50% to 13%. Oh my, the breadwinner in the pink corner landing a massive blow there. The blue corner looks like he's lost 40, maybe 37% of his fighting power there. Not a good day to wear a white shirt. The same study also found that women's participation in paid employment has been encouraged by UK and EU policies aimed at reducing barriers to work caused by conflicting work and family life responsibilities. Such policies have gone hand in hand with a marked increase in the proportion of mothers in the labour force and a narrowing in the gap between the employment rates of women with and without dependent children, such that, in 2010, there was less than one percentage point difference in the participation rates of mothers, 66.5%, and women without dependent children, 67.3%. In 2010, a higher proportion of mothers still worked part-time, 37%, rather than full-time, 29%, sharing their time between work and looking after the family. So women are more actively involved in the workplace than they were 40 years ago, but there is still a definite tilt towards women with children having one foot in the workplace and one foot in the home. Or two feet at work and one foot at home. Or two feet at home and one foot at work. Did you not know about that third foot some women have? I mean, it's very useful, especially in a gender games wrestling oh, match. Referee, that's surely illegal. I've never seen that kind of tripod before. I'll allow it. And while men have been in the dominant positions in the workplace for a long time, the decline of certain industries in the UK, such as the industrial sector with jobs like mining and the rise of more office-based roles, has created a working environment that is more accommodating to women in the society we currently live in. Men still dominate in classically male jobs, quote unquote, such as construction, where only 14% of positions are currently held by women in the UK, but the field is generally more open for women than it has been at any time in history or history. As Annabel Williams writes in her phenomenal book, why women are poorer than men and what we can do about it. The terms man session and he session were coined to describe the economic downturn of 2007 to 9, when men were particularly badly affected by the demise of manufacturing and heavy industry in the West. A man can't sell his strength as he once could. The economic shift towards service-led and information industries that's been underway for the past 30 years may suggest that the workplace of the future favors stereotypically feminine qualities, communication, cooperation, and social intelligence. Machines can't replicate these qualities, or not yet anyway. Over time, changes in the type and availability of work have profound effects on communities and no doubt there will be more conversations to be had in this area. I mean, I feel that opens a whole can of gender worms just on that simple distinction between the qualities of a more industrial past, where you endured the demands of physical labour in factories and mines, say, all of which can now be replicated by machines, computers, and the qualities of the suggested future where supposedly feminine qualities are going to be more in demand and cannot as yet be replaced by automation. This feels to be a large chunk of the root of the current ongoing crisis of traditional masculinity. Not so fast, Taria. 
As Annabelle William writes, there is no country where women in work collectively earn as much as men for their labour. Across Europe and Australia, women earn an average of 18 to 19% less than men, and the pace of change is so slow that, according to the World Economic Forum, it will take 257 years for the gap to close. 257 years. How many Christmases is that? And with the existence of this gender pay gap, it's not like women aren't working hard to eradicate it. Annabelle Williams continues, Researchers found that women ask for pay rises as frequently as men, but are 25% less likely to be given them. It's structural sexism and assumptions about women's worth that keeps us down. So with that in mind, when thinking about the breadwinner in the traditional sense, the one who goes out and earns the money, even when both the man and woman in the relationship, or the man and the man, or the woman and the woman, are working full time, the women are always going to be more likely to be worse off. Looking at the queer elements of her research, Annabel Williams notes, there is limited research on the intersection of race, disability, sexuality, and other identities with poverty, although studies from India, the US, and Brazil suggest that same-sex couples and LGBTQ people are more likely to be poor than the general population. In the US, lesbian couples are twice as likely to receive food stamps as mixed-sex couples. A separate study suggests female same-sex couples have a higher risk of poverty than male couples because the gender wage gap keeps earnings in households without male earners relatively low. So the logic would then read, men generally earn more because of the gender wage gap, so women, whether straight or gay or trans, particularly a lesbian couple, will earn less. If the gender wage gap in the UK is 90p on the pound, which the recently published study by the government revealed was the case for the previous year, then a straight couple working in the same job could be expected to take home a combined 76,000, whereas a lesbian couple doing the same job as each other in the same office would take home a combined 72,000. And a gay male couple, where both men worked in the same job in the same hypothetical office, would take home 80,000. So actually, the gay men are having their cake and eating it. That sounds rude, but I don't know why. Quick, darling, say something about gay bakeries making gay cakes so you sound relevant. Gaykeries. In terms of the trans and gender fluid communities, as Annabelle Williams points out, we don't know how not conforming to the gender binary model affects wealth and wages, and this data gap needs to be addressed. So yes, at this point, it's hard to determine how the non-cis among us are faring in the winning of the bread. And there goes the bell, end of the round. So who won that round? Who could be crowned the true breadwinner of the social wrestling ring? And who's more of a crust or crumbs champion? What do you think, Jessica, Haria? Well, the blue corner got off to a good start, but I think the pink corner put in a blinding performance to bring it home. I don't know, Haria. I think the blue corner's long-time skin in the game might just save him this time. Three. The winner of the breadwinner round of the gender games is... It's the men, of course it's the men. <laughs> Yay. Entrenched sexism. Oh, what a shock. Oh, no, it's not really, is it? I've been doing this job too long. My mouth's just used to being wide open at this point. That's what I've heard. Ladies, would you agree that women do more of the caring in society? I don't know. It depends who needs the caring. Would you uh, care to tell us, Ray? Yes, of course, Haria, and I've actually got another word from the fantastic Annabelle Williams to start us off. Disability is also a factor that jumps out of the data. Some 3.7 million people living in poverty are disabled, and there are more disabled women, 54.4%, than men. Who do you think is looking after them? Nearly three quarters of family carers, read unpaid carers, are women. And let's not forget that women make up almost 80% of the paid workers in the care sector, 
which was also among the lowest paid fields. This brings us to the second role in the gender games bingo, or gender roles tarot even. The gender games. It's the carer. Well, who came up with these wrestling names? They're all so terrible. And here we are for round two, and in the blue corner we have the carer. Make some noise for the carer. And in the pink corner we have the carer. Such awful wrestling names. Uh, No, I'm just high. And I don't know. Maybe they've switched them. Oh, what fun. Over to you, Ray Treacle. The gender pay gap is a phrase that's been in the language for a while now. And worldwide, it is an issue that is gradually being improved. There's a really great episode from Netflix's Explain series on women in the workplace. And by looking at countries like Iceland and Rwanda in particular, which are leading the way in terms of equality in both representation and pay, it becomes clear that it isn't simply a matter of women being paid less and being given less opportunity than men. It is in fact more specifically women who have children who are being paid less and given less opportunities than everybody else. And that's largely being driven by the strong social expectation that women take the lion's share of the childcare and caregiving that, ultimately, the baby and then child is more their responsibility than a man's. And, as Annabelle Williams observes, when a woman stays out of paid work to look after house and home, she effectively subsidises her partner's ability to build wealth, including his earning capacity for today and the future, his savings, credit score and retirement fund. It has been suggested that, to accurately measure female inequality, women in this position should be classed as in poverty, because, as individuals, they are. She goes on to talk about the lingering stigma around pregnancy in the workplace in the UK, where, even today, the Equality and Human Rights Commission believes that 50,000 pregnant women each year are fired illegally in the UK. A figure that has doubled since 2005. Global sports brand Nike recently made the headlines after it was revealed that the company financially penalises athletes after when they become pregnant. So pregnancy is still seen to this day by the employer as an inconvenience, a lot of income, a need to pay to retain the services of someone who is then ultimately regarded as disposable. This led the athlete Alicia Montano to compete whilst eight months pregnant to prove her point to Nike about the prejudiced fragility they were placing her and other expectant athletes, like herself, in. Nike has now come into the 21st century and protects women from financial penalties for 18 months from the first month of their pregnancy. This is the weirdest wrestling match I've ever commentated on. What about you, Haria? I uh, once commentated on Piers Morgan having a fight with a vegan sausage roll. Who won? Do you really need to ask that question? It seems that countries like Iceland are making such great progress in terms of workplace equality because it has been enshrined in law since 2000 that both a man and a woman are entitled to an equal amount of paid parental leave, six months, and you are expected to take it. Which immediately changes the hiring situation, changes the job market, the employer's perspective when hiring new candidates. The employer no longer thinks, I'll hire Magnus over Marta because Magnus isn't going to go on parental leave if he has kids. Because both Magnus and Marta, if they have kids, will be leaving the office for six months. So there's instantly the sense of risk which could have been there, could have been associated with hiring a woman just because she has ovaries. That is just completely gone. And the sense that the woman will see her career pause and stagnate once she has kids, whereas her male partners will continue to rise, that is gone too, in theory. And the more widespread this is and becomes, the less of an issue your gender will be in the workplace, as neither will be seen as being inherently more problematic than the other, just because they have reproductive organs. That's gotta be how you solve it. Of course, that doesn't take into account people of either or any gender who don't want to have kids. They could, of course, in theory, exceed beyond their childbearing co-workers and create a new kind of gap. The child gap, I guess. But at least, 
any discrepancy that could emerge here is a matter of choice, rather than a matter of identity, a matter of who you are at your very core and do not want to change. And that is what the Netflix episode of Explained on Women in the Workplace observes and argues, that it's not women in general who are falling behind men, but women with children, because they are expected to take on the caring responsibilities and therefore their career falls behind their partners. They could be working in the same position, in the same company, yet the woman will struggle with the current expectations around childcare and home care to keep pace with her male partner. Ooh, the blue corner in with a real baby maker of a hit there. And now he's sat down, what's he doing? Uh, the assistants are bringing out a table and chairs and cutlery. Oh, he's waiting for his dinner. You're gonna be waiting a long time, mate. There was a global study in 2013 called The Global Gender Gap conducted by the World Economic Forum. The study collected massive amounts of data across 136 countries and compared the countries studied based on the levels of equality between men and women in those countries. So they recorded the female participation in the labor force and compared that with the presence of men. Much like the gender pay gap is measured in terms of how much women earn for every pound or dollar or euro, that would then produce a percentage figure of how female participation compared to the number of men in the workforce. Other areas studied were estimated income, female literacy, life expectancy, and number of female MPs. So out of the 136 countries studied, who ultimately came out on top? Yep, you guessed it, bloody Iceland. Finland was second, Norway third, Sweden fourth, the Philippines fifth, Ireland sixth, New Zealand seventh, Denmark eighth, Switzerland ninth, and Nicaragua 10th, Germany was 14th, the UK was 18th, the US was 23rd, France was 45th. Oh, mon Dieu. So, at the end of that, who's won our second round? Who's the chosen one of the carers? And who sort of just cares a little bit, you know, when they feel like it? It's the women, of course. Yay, more entrenched sexism. That's not a surprise at all, Haria. I'm very caring. What do you care about, JJ? Oh, lots of things. Me, myself, and I, the number one, El Numero Uno, is that what you're calling it these days? So, looking back at that global gender gap study, ladies, what do you reckon the top ten all have in common? There are places I'd never want to live in in a million years. They're all in Scandinavia. No, Nicaragua is not in Scandinavia, Haria. Are you sure? I thought she was a drag queen, Nicaragua. Loved her on season two. Mm. Get it? Nicka naughty. That's French for steal her water, Nicaragua. You wanted to know. So that's again from 1 to 10. Iceland, Finland, Norway, Sweden, the Philippines, Ireland, New Zealand, Denmark, Switzerland, Nicaragua. What an arse on her. Mm. What do they all have in common that makes them generally better places for women than anywhere else in the world? Because they, with the exception of Ireland and the Philippines, either at the time of study in 2012, 2013 or currently, have female prime ministers. Only Ireland amongst those 10 has never had a female head of government. Come on, Ireland, get some more female head. And that brings us on to our third role, the leader. Follow the leader, follow the leader. In 1987, when 48% of people surveyed in the UK believed in gendered roles, when interviewed by Women's Own, Margaret Thatcher famously said, If children have a problem, it is society that is at fault. There's no such thing as society. I think we have gone through a period when too many children and people have been given to understand I have a problem, it's just the government's job to cope with it. Or, I have a problem, I will go and get a grant to cope with it. I am homeless, the government must house me, and so they are casting their problems on society. And who is society? There's no such thing. 
There are individual men and women and families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people look to themselves first. So, there's no such thing as society. I guess you could ask then, what's the point of having you as Prime Minister? Are you just there to inspire people to look out for themselves? Don't listen to me, look out for yourselves. You're all individuals. Okay then, that makes you a sort of glorified self-help book in a power suit or an influencer. Margaret Thatcher, the influencer, who'd have thought it? It's interesting to note that in an article of 11,000 words, Thatcher only references the word women five times and each time that reference is made to women, it is in the phrase men and women. The word woman only actually appears because <laughs> the magazine is called Woman's Own. The first female prime minister of the UK was, needless to say, not the most transformative for women's rights. She didn't have any women in her cabinet, for example. So it's a bit like having a cardboard cutout of a woman giving a keynote speech at a woman's conference. And then the man steps in to deliver the speech because, you know, oh dear, poor girl can't talk. Bit harsh, maybe. Oh, that's a clear hit for the leader in the blue corner, taking his opponent unawares with the unconventional Margaret Thatcher technique. My dad met Margaret Thatcher once. Did he? Yeah, he grew up in Africa and carried a pot of water like they do in Africa on his head around London to raise awareness for water rights. Oh, and? Well, he got to meet Margaret Thatcher and there's a picture of him standing with a pot on his head next to Margaret Thatcher. Oh, and? Well, that's it. Oh, so you don't understand that when I say, oh, and? I'm expecting you to have something interesting or witty to say. Well, goddamn life, Haria. But to criticise Thatcher in that way is not to recognise the social climate in which she was operating, in which she was leading. One with entrenched ideas around gender. One where, in the year where she was elected for the third time, 1987, 48% of those surveyed believed gendered roles should be upheld. So, presumably, a considerable number of those who voted her in believed that being a leader was for men and being a cheerleader was for women. Did they think they were voting in the next top cheerleader vote? Oh no, I voted for female prime minister by mistake. Whoops. Oh well, I've done it for the third time. What am I like? Maybe you should put me in charge instead. Definite here for the blue corner, who is really leading the way so far. I have some leads on who might win this round. Have you been gambling again, Haria? Yes, I, yes, I'm getting better. I've got a good bet on, actually. It's guaranteed to be big money. The Ree's going to make a pun based on their name. This way it's guaranteed moolah. Moolah for days. Moolan days, moolah days. Of 193 countries worldwide, there were, as of April 2022, 27 female leaders. That number is now 28 as of September 2022, with 30 female leaders in total worldwide, according to unwomen.org. But then I believe that might now be down to 27 again because, well, you know, Liz Truss. The majority of the elections for these female leaders coming into office were as recent as 2019, or some even more recently. These countries are Bangladesh, Barbados, Denmark, Estonia, Ethiopia, Finland, Gabon, Georgia, Greece, Honduras, Hong Kong, Iceland, Lithuania, Moldova, Namibia, Nepal, New Zealand, Samoa, Serbia, Singapore, Slovakia, Sweden, Taiwan, Tanzania, Togo, Tunisia, and Uganda. And God, we love you. Of those 193 recognised nations, 119 have never elected a female president. Come on, Ireland. I think it's come on Arlene, JJ. Why would I do that? According to unwomen.org, which is the UN organisation dedicated to gender equality and the empowerment of women, 
gender parity will not be reached at current rates for another 130 years. So if you're keeping track, that's 130 years till we achieve... So if you're keeping track, that's 130 years till we achieve gender parity and another 257 years until we achieve gender wage parity. It's a shame we're not looking into the role of the waiter because women would win very, very comfortably. Very good at waiting, those women. God love them, they're good at waiting. According to the UK Parliament's website, there are currently 225 serving female MPs across all parties in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. There is actually, I'm pleased and interested to note, an option to search for non-binary MPs, which I was like, oh, non-binary MPs, has, has, has something changed? Is, is it now legal for us to, to be, exist and to, to come out and play with everybody else? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, there's just a search result that is returned. Search returns, no results. Story of my life. But it is progress, you know. It's sort of like empty progress, but it's, 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 it's there. In the current UK cabinet for Rishi Sunak's government, there are 30 serving ministers and seven of those are women. In terms of women leading in ministerial positions within the government on a global scale, the five most commonly held positions by women are family or children or youth or elderly or disabled services, followed by social affairs, the environment, natural resources, energy, employment, labor or vocational training, and women's affairs and gender equality. Women's affairs. In terms of GDP, that's global domestic product, essentially from what I understand, how much a country is worth based on its total assets. Of those 27, 28 countries, in the world currently who have female leaders, only five of those are in the top 50. None are in the top 20. Now, is that a fair assessment to make at this point in history, seeing as how so much of GDP is dependent on not just the effects of history, such as colonialism, but also facts of geography, whether a land is resource rich in some way? Is that a fair thing to put under the gender microscope? Probably not. That's a... That's... That's... Well, Ria, I think that's what they call in Eurovision a nil point. <laughs> <laughs> the tea is silent, Jessica. I wish you were silent. There is the fact that a government dominated by one gender will be most likely to benefit that gender in society through its policies. And also, just because there's a female leader, though half of the top 10 of the countries in the Global Gender Gap study have female leaders, just because a country, a government, a company has a female leader or female leaders in prominent positions, it doesn't mean that the country, the government, that company will as a whole have the best interests of women at heart. Well, someone's got some big money on the blue corner tonight. I'm looking at you, Maria. Hey, society's sexist. Don't shoot the commentator. And that will, of course, affect women in society as a whole, as evidenced in Annabelle Williams's book. No, she's a writer and journalist and campaigner for women's rights. I, I, I'm sorry, is, is, is Annabelle Williams a wrestler? Is she in this fight? No, she's a writer and journalist and campaigner for women's rights. Sounds like somebody loves her. It's a really excellent book, okay? Like, go go read it. There's, there's a copy under your seat. All right, Oprah. Oprah. Annabelle Williams writes, This inequality is exacerbated by male-dominated governments who make decisions about tax and welfare policy without considering the gendered effects of their actions. One of the clearest examples is when governments decide to cut budgets for healthcare and state support. Cuts that largely affect women because they are more involved in caring roles and are more reliant on state support. In the UK, the slashing of budgets since 2010 has cost women 79 billion compared to 13 billion for men. Which does then beg the question, are benefits not an issue of class or access, but an issue of gender? 
In the business world too, it seems that investors have less faith in women in positions of leadership than men. According to why women are poorer than men and what we can do about it, it's also in the big things. Female entrepreneurs face sexist scrutiny in the boardroom and only one penny in every pound of venture capital funding goes to startups run by women. There is certainly the sense, if you look at the kind of social landscape of the startup industries, the tech industry, that like, oh, that's, you know, that's like, that's what men do. They're really good at that. But is it? Is it? There is also the matter of context surrounding a leader's rise to power. In terms of political leadership, we obviously have less evidence to go on for women at this point, and by virtue, less on men in comparison, because it's hard to compare and contrast. I mean, impossible, really why and when people assume leadership based on their gender when one side is dominating, has been dominating. I mean, I suppose you could say, yes, and as you can see from the evidence that we've extracted that, that we have had 130 male prime ministers elected and only three female prime ministers elected, this clearly states that people tend to think men are just better at leading than women. I mean, that's it. Well done, everyone. Just You can pack up. We can go home now. Job done. But there has been research into when men and women are trusted with power, whether in politics or business, and what that then says about our attitudes to either gender. Women and people of ethnic minorities are more likely to be trusted in times of crisis, research has shown. And I mean, if you look at the most recent UK Prime Ministers in the past few months, you have both Liz Truss, a woman, and Rishi Sunak, a British man whose family are of Indian Punjabi descent. Exeter University's psychology department speaks of the phenomenon of the glass cliff, which is a phenomenon whereby women and members of other minority groups, such as those based on race or disability, are overrepresented in leadership positions that are risky and precarious. Think UK Prime Minister Theresa May and Brexit. The metaphor evokes a woman who has reached the heights of senior leadership, but nonetheless finds herself teetering on the edge. These leadership positions can occur at the highest levels of large multinational companies, in local libraries and primary schools, in politics, and even in sport. Indeed, there are examples of glass cliffs in every realm in which there are leadership positions. The glass cliff is a robust phenomenon that has been demonstrated empirically through over a decade's worth of archival and experimental research, including work in the UK, the US, the Netherlands, Australia and Germany. Anecdotally, I've started watching the Disney Plus series about Wrexham Football Club, which is a football club in Wales, currently in the National League, which is the fifth rung of the English football system, so Premier League, Championship, League One, confusingly, League Two, also confusingly, and National League. And Wrexham Football Club was bought in the past few years by actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, and the club has not been doing as well it has done historically for some time. It's required great investment and support from the local community just to keep it from being uh, no more of a club, from, from just dis dis disappearing from the league for, due to financial difficulties. So Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney have come in, and it's a really heartwarming story basically i mean because they're actors and they're very upfront about that they just enjoy storytelling and i suppose footballers are storytellers too and they've come in and really tried to galvanize the club and one day get it into the premier league and then there's been all this kind of overhaul and they needed to bring in new staff and new ceo because the previous ceo wasn't working and who did they bring in as ceo to oversee this time of change for a sleeping giant of a club who'd recently flirted with existential crisis, nearly losing its stadium and so to its very existence in 2014. They brought in Fleur Robinson, respected former CEO of Burton Albion Football Club. Sexism? I mean, Fleur would be a lovely name for a male football club CEO. Yes, it's sexism. But is it positive sexism? 
That's the question. Babe, 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 babe. I'm positive. It's sexism. The glass cliff has been shown to extend to race too, with researchers Michelle Ryan and Alex Haslam, who coined the phrase in 2003, finding that in an analysis of three UK elections between 2001 and 2010, that within the Conservative Party, candidates with BAME backgrounds were pitted against candidates who had previously secured a high proportion of the vote. From which you can basically read, the party put them up against the hardest candidates, the hardest candidates to defeat with the greatest track record on the opposing side, and therefore put them onto the glass cliff that no one else, read white men, wanted to step out onto. So ladies, what do you reckon for our third round? Who led the pack and who's been led along on Agenda Leash? Well, the pink corner had some great tricks and turns and for some reason there was glass everywhere at one point. But then the blue corner came along with a dustpan and brush, very modern of him, and swept it all up. I think that was supposed to be a metaphor or something. I think that was supposed to be a metaphor for something. Yes, glass is dangerous. Exactly. Well, I can reveal that the winner of the third round of the gender games is... The leader! Sorry, just let me re-do that. Ah, I'm rich! I mean the blue corner, it's the blue corner leader! And that leads us onto our final role, our final round. The entertainer. Surely we couldn't get the rights for that. Well, that would explain why my paycheck is so small. Honey, honey, don't talk down what Mother Nature gave you. It's a lovely package. Oh, and now our first fighter is coming out. And yes, in the pink corner, you guessed it, it's the entertainer. And in the blue corner, entertainer will be about about. Great stuff, ladies. And I'm going to start this fight with an anecdote. That's how most fights start in my house. That's because your anecdotes suck. At least I regularly get a good suck. Something I've noticed over the course of my life, being particularly interested in things like the arts, music, writing, theatre, poetry, comedy, art, it's the dominance of women in certain areas, at least on the ground level. On both sides of my degree as an English and French student, I would generally be in a room, whether a lecture hall of maybe 50 or more people, or a tutorial group of five or six, where I'd be one in 10, say, in terms of male to female. Back then, I wasn't out as non-binary. And I didn't know back then either that I could be one in 10 in a group of five or six. I didn't do a math degree. Anyway, I've seen this carried on, going to writing workshops in recent years. Women are the dominant attendees, and I've had this backed up by other people I've spoken to going to these events themselves. But is that born out of the top of the writing industry? A study was conducted by Lee and Lowe Books, which is an independent publishing house specialising in books by and about people of colour. Looking at the top 100 publishers in the US, it was found that only 24% of all published writers are women, and only 15% by people of colour. So it's almost the opposite way round when you reach the top of the field, at least in the US. The journalist Nilanjana Roy has looked into the role of women in writing, publishing, in an article for the FT. And she writes, In the UK, a survey by industry magazine The Bookseller showed that women dominated 2017's literary bestseller list, with Margaret Atwood, Sarah Perry, Eleanor Ferrante, Helen Dunmore, Arundhati Roy, Ali Smith, Zadie Smith, Naomi Alderman and Maggie O'Farrell in the top 10. The only male author on its list was Haruki Murakami. Look at 2017's bestsellers across all categories and genres in the UK, and the picture changes, but only slightly. Men dominate the top 10 in a list compiled by The Guardian, with only Sharia Le Pen joining Jamie Oliver, Dan Brown, David Williams, Jeff Kinney and others. But the overall list has titles by 44 women and 22 men. So although women are dominating in terms of the amount of books sold, their popularity, men are seemingly being given more attention and credence. Male authors, when interviewed, are observed to be more likely to recommend another male author than a female author. 
and male readers are more likely to read books by male authors. Oh, I love a bit of male-on-male -male action. In my experience of going to jam nights, open mics, and being part of gig lineups as a musician, this is very much the case at the ground level too in the world of music. And it also seems to be the way too at the top level. Men absolutely dominate. There are great vibrant jam scenes in cities I've lived in from Liverpool to Bristol to Paris, but largely, in my experience, it is men putting themselves out there and up there on stage. And it has largely been men in my experience you've seen behind the sound desk, doing the tech, running the venues. But things do seem to be getting better, to be becoming more representative. According to the UK Music 2020 study, a study of workforce diversity in the music industry as a whole, of those 3,670 people who responded, 49.6% were female, 48.8% were male, 0.5% were non-binary or a self-described identity, and 1.1% chose not to disclose which gender identity they hold. This had changed from 2016, where 53.6% were male and 45.3% were female. Oh, that's a stonking strike for the pink corner, leaving the blue corner backpedaling like crazy. Yes, aren't percentages sexy? How do you reckon? Well, if you squint, a percentage sign almost looks a little like a tip. Now, yes, on the surface, this looks like movement in the right direction. It is, of course, necessary, though, to look at where in the system this more diverse spread is being reflected. In entry-level and junior positions, women outnumber men considerably, with 66.7% of interns being female and 64.7% of entry-level positions being occupied by women. For mid, it's 51.2%, and for senior positions, it's 40.4% female. That's not too bad, actually, for the upper levels, given where we are in society at the moment. Yes, there's a real inconsistency at the bottom. Sounds like you, JJ. So we can read from that the basic truth that more women are getting into the industry, perhaps starting their careers lower down or sticking around there longer, but things are looking healthier at the top too. And the blue corner is now coming back strong. It's going to be very interesting to see how this turns out. Music festivals have been a big contention point in recent years. In 2018, 45 festivals worldwide, from Liverpool Sound City to the BBC Proms to Canadian Music Week, pledged to have gender-balanced lineups with 50-50 representation of male and female artists. Great, left hook from the pink corner there. And 600 music organisations and festivals alike have pledged to the Key Change Initiative, a campaign across the UK, Europe and North America set up by the former CEO of the PRS Foundation, Vanessa Reed. And a strong right hook too. But. But. There are estimated to be in excess of 10,000 festivals worldwide, big and small, and of the biggest, only Glastonbury has met that pledge. Oh, oh she's fallen over. I think she got caught on a mic cable. Now, he's a wonderful drag king. The BBC Newsbeat study in 2022 finds that only 13% of all festival lineups in the UK, 13%, 13%, 13% of all festival lineups in the UK in 2022 had a gender balanced lineup. Solo men and all-male bands made up 75.4% of all lineups across the UK festivals this year. Have you not heard of PJ Harvey? And, and I'm sure there's others as well. That's a change of only 5% in five years since 2017 of more women being introduced onto lineups of festivals in the UK. That's only 5% in five years. One percentage point a year, that's not... That's not bad, right? Well, if I just get out my calculator, who brings a calculator to a wrestling match? For moments just like this, Jessica. By those standards, in the UK at least, we will have true gender parity in the music festival industry by... Mm. 
And that's just to get it down to 50% all male ads. 2048, blimey. Oh, oh, that's the year of my 30th birthday. Now that'll be a year to celebrate, but unfortunately, not much for the pink corner to celebrate now. And the winner of the final round of the Gender Games 2022 is... It's the pink corner. No, wait, sorry, I'm gender blind. It's the brown corner. It's the blue corner. Congratulations, you boys in blue. Another victor victory. So let's have a look at the scores and the gendered toilet doors. And it's three for the blue corner and one for the pink corner. So the blue corner is crowned the champion of the gender roles in this year's gender games. Well, that was a waste of time. I could have finished my course getting into cyber. Well, I really enjoyed it. I think things might be very different next year. That's if they book you again, sweetie. Maybe in 2048. Oh, oh, uh, yeah, that, that's my 29th birthday year. I better get planning. So we'll see you next year, ladies, and you, listener, for the next time we play The Gender Games. This podcast is supported via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash drodge, that's D-R-O-D-G-E, you can support the podcast from £2.50 a month and become part of this evolving community around all that is, was, and may be, gender. For now, much love and all the gender. Drodgecast is a production by Barush Voices for Drodge. Label without labels.